Please again join me by turning in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is my intention to read three sections of God's Word, or actually four. And the first one is found here in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. The Apostle Paul is directing his comments to the church at Thessalonica and commending them for their faith and its exceeding growth. But as you know, that church had its faith exceedingly grow in the midst of severe persecution, mainly wrought by those among the Jewish people in Thessalonica and other places who had followed the apostolic band to Thessalonica and who were trying themselves to believe the gospel but did not want the Gentiles to be included in the blessings of the gospel and so persecuted and drove Paul and his group out of Thessalonica and continued to persecute the church of the Thessalonians. And so he says in verse 4 that they, the apostle, the apostle and his company, glory or boast about the church in Thessalonica or Thessalonica in the churches of God because of their endurance, their patience and faith in all their persecutions and in the afflictions which they endure. So he commends them for a growing faith and connects that growing faith with affliction and persecution. And he commends them that that faith has not stopped growing as a result of the severe persecution and affliction. But then in order to encourage them to continue to endure and to grow in their faith in the face of this severe affliction, he says in verse 5, as we begin to read, speaking of the affliction, a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God to the end or for the purpose or with the end result that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, they wouldn't be suffering if they didn't have their eyes set on the kingdom and weren't living according to the laws of the kingdom of God. That, that's the reason they're in trouble, because of their principles and convictions connected with the kingdom of God. That's why they're suffering. If they want to end the suffering, they can compromise the principles of the kingdom. Back up a little and they can be delivered. But he's encouraging them to continue, knowing that it's going to cost them. And he says it's a righteous token of the righteous judgment of God. And then in verse 6, If so be that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense affliction to them that afflict you. What he's saying here is that in the day of judgment, the whole universe will see that it was righteous of God to let these people into glory. And it is righteous of God to punish those who afflicted them on their way to glory. The day is coming when this persecution will prove to be a righteous token, an evidence of the righteousness of God when he judges these persecutors. The whole world will know what they've been doing. 
And when God judges them, there will be no question as to his righteousness in doing so. Verse 7 continues. And to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed because our testimony to you was believed in that day. He's speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is our subject, at which time he will be glorified in the saints. He will give rest to the saints that are afflicted. Now notice, at this coming with the flaming fire and the holy angels, that's the moment in which the persecuted Christian will be delivered from his persecution. That's when he'll get rest. Not until then. Not seven years before then. But then, when he comes with all the glory of the holy angels in flaming fire, the same coming that we read about in Second Peter 3, when the whole universe will melt with fervent heat, when Jesus comes from heaven, he will be glorified in the saints. He will give rest to those that up till that time have been persecuted. And he will take vengeance on those that persecuted them. That's what we've read in Second Thessalonians 1. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. We're only going to read two verses. We're setting the stage and laying the foundation for our comments on the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we're preaching. We welcome you who are visitors and we trust that as you come into the midst of this series that we'll be as clear as we can be about the Bible doctrine of this critical issue. Many people are asking about it, especially this time of conflict in the Middle East. There are many who are declaring that they understand everything that's going on in the Middle East and it all fits into the prophecy of the Bible. So we're trying to put this thing clear in its biblical perspective. In Matthew 25, verse 31, we read the words of Christ himself. But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory. Now, he's sitting on the throne now, but then it's called the throne of his glory because everyone will see him on that throne. Now, we only know it by faith because the scriptures say it. Then it'll be in the full radiant glory before the universe. He'll sit on his throne of glory. And verse 32, and before him, now this is when he comes with the angels, the same event we read about in Second Thessalonians 1 shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, 
as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then turn with me to John chapter 5. The fifth chapter of the Gospel of John. It's vital that every one of us understands what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes. And it's vital that every one of us be prepared for that day and not caught, as the hymn says, unprepared to meet him. There's nothing more critical in your life than being prepared to meet Jesus Christ when he comes back. So give close attention to these things that we read and attempt to expound. Verse 28 of John chapter 5. The Lord Jesus again. Marvel not at this. Don't let it shock you, surprise you, or cause you any confusion. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. He's simply saying that there's coming a day in the future in which every dead body in every grave and every place found in the whole universe and all the parts of all the dead bodies that ever were killed and died are going to come out from where they are. Some, it's going to be a resurrection to life. Others, it's going to be a resurrection to punishment and judgment. But all are going to come. Everybody's going to be raised. And then finally, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. The book of Acts chapter 17. The reason I'm reading four texts instead of just one is to set the whole thing that we're going to try to present to you this morning in its biblical context. It is foolhardy to assume that any one text ever comprehends the entire doctrine of anything. And it's very wise to learn, according to the rules of good, sound biblical interpretation, the analogy of faith or the analogy of Scripture principles so that we must compare Scripture with Scripture and allow the Scriptures through wise scribes to build together the doctrines that we derive from them. In Acts 17, verse 31. Well, actually, I think we'll read verse 30 as well. Speaking of all the times past before Christ came the first time and how that God, as it were, sort of winked or blinked or turned his head away and allowed men to live in all sorts of wretchedness without an undue massive destruction of them in judgment that they deserved. How he allowed men to continue in their sins and it was like the Lord was sleeping. He says in verse 30, The times of ignorance, therefore, God overlooked. But now, and that was stated in the first century, at the coming and the dying and the rising of Jesus Christ. But now, Christ having risen from the dead and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on how, now he commands men that they should all everywhere repent. This is God commanding that every man everywhere repent. There is no more overlooking. There is no more time 
There is no more patience. God has now commanded every man, even those living in the far reaches of the universe, of this world, in ignorance and darkness. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. God's not holding back. Now they must all, everyone, repent. And he reads on, verse 31, Inasmuch as he, God, has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. There's much in that text. But simply put, God is saying that he's going to judge every man in the world righteously by Jesus Christ. And the way we know that it's Jesus Christ by whom God's going to judge every man is that it is Jesus Christ that he raised from the dead. He didn't raise anybody else from the dead. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's how God gave assurance to all men everywhere that they better repent now because the one he raised is coming back. And he's coming back in an hour that we think not. He's coming back suddenly. He's coming back with catastrophic consequences. And he's coming back to judge the world. God has commanded every man to repent everywhere. And he has assured every man that he's going to require that repentance at their hand because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God's made it clear to the world that the time clock of judgment is ticking. And there's no more excuse and no more delay and no more winking, no more overlooking. Men now have an accountability that goes far beyond what they were required before Jesus came. Now, why did I read all that? I wanted to introduce the subject this morning, the third part of this brief series in which we are announcing the related concomitant events to the second coming, the things that are going to happen when Jesus comes. We have stated two of them. First, when Jesus comes, there will be the full revelation of the glorious kingdom of Christ with no opportunity for later decline. Second, when Jesus comes, we have seen that there will be the complete renovation of the entire universe with no possibility of further corruption. God's going to redo the earth and the heavens. But third, this morning, we consider there will be the final judgment of all the wicked with no hope of subsequent repentance. The final judgment of all the wicked with no hope of subsequent repentance. Now I share the spirit of Pastor Spurgeon who when preaching on one of the texts regarding the hell and the wrath of God Back in 1855, as a young preacher at the New Park Street pulpit, said to his people, I'd rather not preach this. I'd rather stay on the sweeter portions of the gospel. And yet it's in the word of God and therefore must be preached. We wish not to preach it meanly. We certainly have no intent of preaching it with any delight. And we do not delight in the perishing of any man, nor does the Lord. We would long to be able to pull together our redeemed humanity and preach it 
in such a way that tears would flow down our face as we preached it. We're not always able to meet that standard. We would wish we could. But nonetheless, we must preach this subject, not only because it's in the Word of God, but it is a critical and central part of the Word of God. And it is of the utmost importance to every one of you sitting here, even to you little ones. Jesus Christ is coming again, suddenly, to judge every living and dead human being. Now, we didn't mention all the angels, but the wicked angels also will be judged. Now, I want to break this down into three parts. I want to ask first the question, whom will be judged? Whom will God judge? Second, by what standard will they be judged? And third, with what result will this judgment develop? Who will be judged? By what standard will they be judged? And with what result? The first, who will be judged? And the simple answer of the scripture is, every living soul. And every dead soul, the living and the dead, all men, all mankind, all human beings that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Those that are alive when Jesus returns will be judged. They will have to meet him. Those that have died and are in the tombs will be brought by his voice out of the tombs and will be judged. There will be no one escaping that day. There are no exceptions. They will all be judged. Every one of you will stand in the presence of Jesus Christ the King and be judged for everything you ever did. There will be no exceptions. There will be nobody late for that courtroom proceeding. There will be no uh, stays of execution granted. There will be no postponement of the court date. Everyone will be there on time before Christ on his terms for his judgment. No exceptions. No escapes. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. The passages we've read prove there will be no exceptions. Revelation chapter 6 shows us that there will be no escapes. No one will be able to avoid the judgment day. How many sit here this morning who have been skillfully avoiding the eye of God in little and big things in your life? But whether you think you have succeeded in avoiding the searchlight of the Spirit of God and the Word of God throughout this world, and whether or not you make it to the end having never been caught, one day you will be caught. And you will not escape. And here it is in Revelation chapter 6, verse 14. The Lord is describing the great cataclysmic breaking up of the universe, accompanying his return. And he says, And the heaven was removed as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth... Now these are the men 
that have surrounded themselves with bodyguards and with armies and munitions and technological advances who are not afraid of men. But the kings of the earth and the princes and the chief captains and the rich and the strong, they're going to be called to account. And then he goes on, but in case you have a false view of social justice, and think that God is going to let the poor and the weak avoid that day because somehow they were poor and weak. No, no. He goes on and says every bond man and free man, even slaves, are going to be called to account. And what did they do? They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. Why are they begging for physical destruction? Because they want to be hidden, as it says, from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, the one who came the first time to deliver them from their sins will come the next time to judge them in their sins. Something kill us, because the wrath of the Lamb is come. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who is able to stand? Now there is an implication in this passage that the men of the world, the women of the world, have expected this day to come. It's like they're saying, well, it, it, it came. It was true. It's here. It finally came. If you read your New Testament and the Old, you'll find pretty soon that God does not hold men unaccountable because of their ignorance. In Romans 1, he declares that they are ignorant, but their ignorance is a result of their own choice. They knew God. They knew truth. They knew the judgment of God. And they knew that such things that they do were wrong and were worthy of death, but they continued in those things. God's the one that therefore gave them over in his wrath to a reprobate mind. You ask your question, how can man be so mean and perverted and cruel? We hear about Saddam Hussein and we ask, how can a man do such things? I'll tell you how. A reprobate mind. How can men be so perverted as they are in our day and say things that they're so perverted and so absolutely crazy that you, you hesitate and, and assume you must have missed something? It's so crazy you can't believe anybody would say it. It would be clear to any sane person that what he's saying is absurd. And yet we're covered with absurdities. Why? A reprobate mind. And it started with a mind that didn't want to hear a portion of God's word. It started by some word from God being tuned out. Some aspect of the moral law of God being resisted by the conscience. So God increasingly gave us what we wanted. You don't want the word of God? I'll take it away and give you something else. You'll begin to cry out to the stumps of trees. You'll begin to worship Shadows and ghosts and past lives. You'll begin to worship drugs and sex as a result of your refusal to heed God's word and embrace it. 
No escapes. They would wish they could escape. They will beg for a way out. But there's no escape. And none shall stand who have been wicked in that day. The great terror is that for the first time in the rich man's life, his money can't pay him out. For the first time in the great mighty king and soldier's life, his might cannot escape this day. There's no bunker that will hide you from the day of the wrath of the Lamb. There is no shelter that will hide you. Death will not prevent it. And you'll beg to die and you will not be able to die. There are many today who are begging and requiring and insisting that this society save them from the fruit of their own perverted living. And your insurance has gone up drastically as a result of their demand. And they despise any who don't understand the logic of it. They think we're not compassionate. They're wrong, but that's their thought. They don't want to die. They beg to live. But one day, many of them will beg to die. They will wish they had died and been able to escape, but there is no escape. No exceptions, no escape, no excuses. Turn back to Matthew 25. And don't think men aren't going to offer excuses. They're going to offer excuses. When people get caught by men doing wrong, they have a million excuses. We're brilliant rationalizers. How much more are we going to try to get around God's great day? Oh, how our children look for ways out of spankings. How they become brilliant and wise and shrewd in logic when they think the paddle's coming. They are sharp. And they will do anything they think needed to work out a deal. Usually the first response is to minimize the deed. I didn't mean to. I, it wasn't I. He made me. It was an accident. What are you talking about, Dad? All sorts of ways to divert the attention from the act that was observed. We try to teach our children... Get it in your soul and cultivate in your conscience the habit that as soon as you do it, you confess it as it was. And if you don't do that and somebody else sees it, cultivate in yourself a spirit that immediately responds as you're right. Because that's the only time that you'll ever find mercy is when you really thoroughly confess. Even the common grace left in our own nation teaches us that. Many people would have been much quicker to forgive some of our politicians if they had been much quicker to own up to what they'd done. There's a sense of common justice about that. Well, God's the same way. He that confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy, but he that covers his sin shall not prosper. To whatever degree we cover it, avoid it. Elude it, excuse it to that degree, will not have it forgiven. Matthew 25 describes a, one portion of those that will attempt some excuses. Verse 44, he has declared to the wicked that they never ministered to him. And in verse 44, they ask this question, similar to what we saw in Malachi in the first hour this morning. They shall answer saying, Lord, notice they call him by the right name. 
When saw we you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? You're, you're telling us we've got all this guilt. When did, we, when did we sin against you? For some reason, they have no idea they've done anything wrong. That is going to be the spirit of many of the wicked in that day. They're going to be surprised that anybody would actually punish them for what they did. Their conscience knows the day is coming. And when it comes, they're going to say, well, the day has come. But they're still going to try to act as though there's no guilt. When did we, when did we do that? Several of our children at a certain stage, well, the only two that have passed this stage, both of them, when they got to a certain age, all of a sudden, they became master. What did I do? And we noticed at the same age in both their cases. What, what, what? And mine was that innocent, straight look. It makes your heart melt that you were about to punish something like this. Well, apparently he didn't know he did anything wrong, so I can't punish him. That's not the way God works. God is chastening you all the time for things you didn't know you were wrong about. God's concept is justice must be served. Not your idea of justice, but justice. Whether you know what it is or not, God knows what it is. We don't know how many people are dying in a war under the wrath of God. And we better be careful before we judge God. For putting to death the so-called innocent. Be careful that you don't decide who's innocent and who's guilty. God does, and I don't believe he's ever made a mistake about it. I don't think anybody ever died when God wasn't ready for them to die. We need to be a little more humble, don't we? There will be no excuses. The Lord tells them, you didn't do it to these that are my brethren. You didn't do it to me. If you didn't love the church, you didn't love Christ. If you didn't minister to the church, his brethren, you didn't minister to Christ. If you didn't serve the church, you didn't serve him. That's what he's saying. These my brethren. You didn't serve them. It was me you were not serving. That is why, brethren, that we are so adamant in this eldership that one cannot separate allegiance to Christ from allegiance to his church. There is no such thing ordinarily of commitment to Jesus Christ without allegiance to His church. There are exceptions in certain situations in some nations, but you don't have the problem in this one. For a Christian in this society to be out of touch with a biblical church by his own will is an aberration and is wrong and will suffer chastening. And if it lasts long, you have to ask whether he's really a Christian. The Lord will not accept the excuses of the wicked. Who's going to be judged? Everyone. There will be no exceptions, there will be no escapes, and there will be no excuses. But second, the question, by what standard will they be judged? We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the standard by which they're going to be judged is the gospel. I'll read it again in verse 8. Rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The standard of judgment is simply the gospel. Nothing more and nothing less. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what we read in John 3. He that believes is not condemned. 
He that believes not is condemned already. Why is he condemned? Because he believed not. Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. God is going to judge the world by the man that he's ordained. And that man is his son. And he's raised him from the dead. And it is in relation to him that we'll be judged. It is by him and on account of our response to him and by the standard of him that we'll be judged. But let me ask the question. Does that relieve your conscience if you're able to say, well, I believe in Jesus Okay, well then, if that's the standard, I'm a Christian, I believed in Jesus, I've accepted him, I made my decision, I remember the time. So, okay, I don't have to worry about the rest of this sermon. I'm not going to be judged. It's nice to learn about the judgment so I can explain it to a few friends, but for me, myself, I don't have to be concerned about it. Well, let me make sure you understand what believing the gospel is. And remember we read in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, who know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe the gospel is the same as obeying the gospel. And to obey the gospel is appositional to knowing God. They that know not God and, it always comes together, obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Today was declared by our president, whom we've, for whom we have so much respect and appreciation, with whom we have our disagreements, but for whom we must continue to pray as he wears the burden of this decision upon his back in a way no other man in the world is bearing it. And anyone that's not compassionate on him during this time is a very insensitive and uncompassionate person. But he is declared today as a day of prayer in the nation, and he's called the nation to go pray. And in his words, he said, whatever your creed, pray. Well, do you know what the word creed means? The creed means, the word creed means, I believe. It comes from the old Latin credo, I believe. In other words, he's saying, no matter what you believe, Pray. I'm glad he called the nation to prayer. I'm sad that he didn't tell us who to pray to. He said, well, he said to God. He did use the word Father. He's the Father of us all. No, he's not the Father of us all. That's not the God of the Bible. He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ know not God. Those that think they know God but reject the gospel of His unique Son know not God. If we're to have our prayers answered and heard, we must address them to the God who can hear them and who can answer them. I say to you, it is not a noble thing for a nation to pretend that it doesn't matter what God you pray to. It is the same as saying none of your prayers matter. And it has the smack of a political move. Because how can any logical person think that if it doesn't matter to whom you pray, that prayer makes a difference? Why pray? Unless we believe there's someone who can hear. Now, are we saying we know there's bound to be somebody out there somewhere 
We don't know who it is. So everybody pray to yours and hope that one of them's the right one. That's what the Athenians had when they had a, an altar to the unknown God. And it was in that chapter that the apostle declared that God's going to judge all you people by Jesus Christ. That's the chapter we read in Acts 17. He comes to town. They have an altar to the unknown God. You know what the theory was? In case we missed one, we'll build one to the unknown one. And we'll cover the territory. Oh, dear brethren, we offer no such patch-up, band-aid approach to your faith and your hope that you can just sort of pray and hope there's something out there that can hear you. We're not apologetic for declaring there is a God who hears prayer. None of the others do. How can we give you help if we pretend that there's two gods that can hear you and refuse to tell you which one? What right do we have to ask you to pray if we don't have the confidence of which one will hear? You say, well, it's not the role of the president to declare which God to believe. Therefore, why is it, is it his role to declare that we should pray? Let's be realistic and consistent. I think it is his role to call the nation to prayer, by the way. It is his responsibility to enforce the laws and to protect our shores. And how best to protect our shores than to bring us right with God. I think it is his duty to tell the nation who is the true God. Would you think that it is the duty of the president to pretend there is no true God? Is that democratic? Is that constitutional? I declare to you I don't think it is. But whether it's democratic and constitutional or not, it is right and biblical and true to assert that the God to whom you must pray to get an answer is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To obey the gospel, to know God, is the issue. What do we mean by obey the gospel? Well, there are three things I want to say about it. and You test yourself to see if you have obeyed the gospel. First, obeying the gospel means to forfeit all other allegiances for Christ and his kingdom. To obey the gospel means to forfeit all other allegiances for Christ and his kingdom. Sound radical. Sound like the church is trying to separate families? Sound like the church is being unfair? Well, it's not the church that came up with that idea. Go back with me, if you will, in your Bible to Luke, the ninth chapter. Fundamental evangelism. The Lord called men to follow him. And he told them what the requirements were if they were to be his followers. He made no exceptions. It, it sets difficult on fat stomachs to hear these requirements. On those that love their families more than Christ, these things are unacceptable. But they haven't changed. They're Christ's requirements. And therefore, they are the requirements of his church. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they went on the way, a certain man said to him, I will follow you whithersoever you go. And Jesus said to him, Sign this card and repeat after me. That's not what he said, is it? He didn't lunge and say, Another convert. He set things straight in the mind of this man. He said, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the heaven have nests. 
But the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. If you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. And you're going to lose some of the conveniences and comforts of this world. If you get in with, with me, there are going to be times you're going to wonder where your next meal and your next bed is going to come from. There's no guarantee that you're not going to lose a lot of that if you follow me. That's what he's saying. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. My father? It's my duty. Apparently the elder son, responsible for managing the estate. Let me make sure first. I'm going to follow you. I mean it. I'm sincere, but I need to wait a bit because there are some real pressing, legitimate concerns in my life. Responsibilities. The Lord's response. He said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and publish abroad the kingdom of God. That seems harsh. Seems unrealistic. It's just biblical. It's Christ. There can be no legitimate duty that can keep me from following Christ or I have not obeyed the gospel. And then another said to him in verse 61, I will follow you, Lord. I want to. I plan to. I'm going to. But first, the the great but first, the nauseating but first, let me bid farewell to them that are at my house. You know the interesting thing here, it has the appearance that the Lord is saying, here I am, drop everything now, follow me now. There's not even time to turn back home and say bye-bye. Not even to spend the weekend with mommy and daddy and your cousins and your brothers and explain to them what you're doing. There's, now what's he saying here? That we're supposed to be some sort of radical people with no rationale and regard for anybody else? No. He's trying to make it clear that to follow him means right now, Everything. Right now. Not to hedge. Not to start making deals. Not to say, well, what if, what if, but first, but first. There are no but first in obeying the gospel. There are none. You find it. You find it in your Bible. I want to see it. There are none. I will follow you but first. All allegiances forfeited right now. Christ and his kingdom or you haven't obeyed the gospel get it settled in your hearts mom Christ comes before your children the greatest disservice you'll ever do to your children is to put them before Christ and to make little idols out of them it'll never bless them they'll rise up to curse you one day and you fathers don't let it happen in your house Don't let it happen. First things first. You get the family up in the morning. You get them dressed. You get their attitude right. And you get them to church on time. And don't you let your wife keep you from getting to church on time. Put the kingdom of God first. You wives. If your husband's dragging his feet. You get up. You set an example. You be principled. Get them dressed. Let's get ready. Honey, let's go. Let's go meet the Lord. Cut out the TV and the toys that keep them from worshiping God. Cut off the right hands and pluck out the right eyes if they can't do it. Don't make them little gods and be afraid of their rejection because you're afraid you're going to turn them away from you. What you're doing is turning them away from Christ while you turn them to you. Forfeit all other allegiances for Christ and his kingdom. Second, to obey the gospel also means to forget 
all other hopes but Christ and his power. Forget all other hopes but Christ and his power. In other words, in the language of Christ and in the imagery of the brazen serpent, look away from yourself to Christ. You have not obeyed the gospel if you're still attempting to get yourself to a place where you're acceptable to God. Trying to turn over a new leaf, trying to improve, trying to straighten out this problem, that problem, so you now can present yourself to God acceptable. You'll never get there. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The best you have is not acceptable. You may come only in one way, the new and living way, the body of Christ shed for us. Our intercessor in heaven whose merciful intercession makes a way for us. You must forget all other hopes of getting to God and getting to heaven but Christ and his power. Your righteousness, your power, you'll never do it. You see, it's not a silly thing. It's not a foolish thing. It's not even a selfish thing for you to forsake yourself and to lean on Christ and cleave to Christ. That is a blessing to God's heart. He loves his people to do that. He wants you to quit trying so hard and begin to lay back on him and trust him. And I'm not talking about not laboring. I'm simply talking about knowing that the source, the author, and the finisher of our salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself and only him. Don't look inside. Your problem is not something that can be healed from inside you. You have not the power to deliver you from yourself. As my little daughter said, not long back, we were, she was going to, uh, somebody wanted to leave and get away from himself. And she said, well, that's silly. You can't get away from yourself. Everywhere you go, you're going to follow you. She's learned at an early age a fundamental principle. Your heart's going to go. Every time you try to deal with your heart, you're going to be dealing with it from the perspective of your rotten heart. Look outside yourself and cry for help from heaven and it'll come. He is able. He is able. He is able, we say. Look to Him. You haven't obeyed the gospel if you're leaning on one good deed of your own or one merit of your own or one place where you've set your body to think that God for that reason is going to accept you. He will not let a one of these people in this place into heaven because you were in the right church. Or even a good church. You ought to be, but that's not going to save you. He's not going to let you into heaven because you read your Bible a lot or because you didn't steal, lie, commit adultery. You've got enough rot in your heart without any of those things to condemn you forever and forever into the... Forget all other hopes, but Christ and his power, as the apostle says in Philippians 3, I've suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. And what he meant there was he suffered the loss of all bragging rights as a good Jew. Everything that he used to think was an advantage in his righteousness before God, he forgot it. Now he has nothing but Christ, the knowledge of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ. And you, if you read Philippians 3, you'll notice that he connects the losing of all that he had confidence in with the resurrection from the dead. He says, if that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You're not going to attain to the resurrection of the righteous unless you forget confidence in yourself. 
The more mature you become as a Christian, the less confidence you have in yourself. Isn't that true? The more you grow, the less macho you are. You see, the evidence of a mature Christian is not one that never cries to God, have mercy on me, a sinner, but one that knows to cry all the more. You want to be an acceptable saint, a mature saint, walking with the giants? You better learn what it means to humble yourself and say, Lord, nothing in me. When you've achieved your greatest righteous act, you'll do nothing but give God thanks and confess that you're an unprofitable servant who've done no more than your duty. And if you even did your duty, it was by grace. And you'll be all the more afraid that you're about to slip and your pride is already creeping in to say, look at what you've done for God. And if you're mature, you won't let it last a second. It's the immature that think that we're waiting for us to build up our spiritual muscles so we don't need God's help so much. Oh, Pastor, I wish I could get mature enough that I didn't have to pray so much. Oh, no, just the opposite. I wish I could get mature enough that I recognize the need to pray all the time without ceasing. Forget all other hopes but Christ and his power. Oh, dear brethren, the Lord Jesus can save sinners, the worst of you. And he will only when you turn from every other hope to him. There will be no deliverance of the United States from this war except by the God who lives in heaven next to his son at his right hand. They may not know it, but he's the one that raises up kings and puts them down. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And all the world will know that someday. Right now we know it. And we declare to you there's one king and one savior. And to obey his gospel is to forget all other hopes but him. But third, not only to forfeit all other allegiances for Christ and his kingdom. And to forget all other hopes but Christ and his power. To obey the gospel also means to forsake All other behavior besides Christ's law. To forsake all other behavior besides Christ's law. In Titus 2.13, in that wonderful passage, speaking of the blessed hope of the return of Christ, it tells us that we are waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, And then it teaches us that the gospel which has come to us and was brought to us by him teaches us some things. It says the gospel teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live a life that's zealous for righteousness. It says that Christ in his dying, in his saving death, has purchased to himself a people of his own possession whose characteristic life is that of good works. Zeal for good works. Zeal for good works. It is characteristic of the ones he saved that they love to obey his law and they're glad to do it. And they grieve that they don't do it more zealously. You haven't obeyed the gospel if you've not gotten that settled. You've not believed the gospel if you think you've believed the gospel of Jesus but you're not going to obey it. If there's an area of his law that you don't want to obey and don't intend to obey, you've not obeyed the gospel, you don't know God, and that judgment will find you unprepared. To obey the gospel is to forfeit all other allegiances for Christ and his kingdom, to forget all other hopes but Christ and his power, and to forsake all other behavior beside Christ's law. Because some of you are asleep, I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Because I don't think some of you heard what I said when I quoted it. This is critical. Those of you that heard it won't mind reading it. Those of you that didn't must read it. Titus 2 verse 11. 
Oh, how the scriptures mix the things so well. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. This is what the grace of God does. The grace of God does not instruct us that now we don't have to worry about obedience. Just the opposite. The grace of God that saves men instructs us thus. To the intent that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. And that means to keep control of our appetites and be sane in the way we function and think and talk. Righteously, that means in accordance with the law of God, we match up. And godly, that means in conformity to the character and the person of God. Soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. That's what the gospel of grace teaches. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. Do you understand what I'm saying and what the scriptures are saying? If you have not put your feet soundly in the way of obedience to everything Christ has commanded, you have not obeyed the gospel. And if the Lord comes this afternoon, you will go into hell. You don't know God, and it is against you that he will take vengeance. That's what we're saying. Is that clear? Don't slough this off. And you who sit as Christians who don't like yelling preachers, don't fail to pray while we try to save men from the flames of everlasting torment. There will be yelling then. And they'll wish someone had yelled now. You say he's getting overzealous. Brethren, you judge, but you better be careful under God what you judge. You're, you're not righteous to judge another man's servant. I fear that day. I tremble before that day as I stand as one who had greater judgment and had the responsibility of making it as clear to you and forcing you to hear me. Let no man disregard you, the scripture says. Take their faces and turn them and make them look and listen. If they're sleeping, tell them to wake up. If they're getting up and walking out in the middle of the sermon, tell their parents to stop it. Because their souls are in the balance. And you who wish we wouldn't do it that way, you need to look at your own attitude. Judge yourself, not the servant of God. The Lord Jesus is going to judge those who didn't obey the gospel. That's the standard of the judgment. Where do you stand? As we've described what it means to obey the gospel. Have you forsaken all other allegiances? Forfeited all other hopes? Forgotten everything else that you were going to do besides his law and given yourself completely to obedience to him? Then you may be safe on that day, but... If you've not met those standards, you need to repent. You need to beg for mercy. And you need to hope that God has not already appointed that his son comes before you get a chance to do it. You better get right with God as I speak.
But the last thing I want to say is, in these few minutes that remain, what is the result of this judgment? All men are to be judged by the standard of the, of the gospel itself. And with what result? Two results. First, eternal punishment apart from God. Eternal punishment apart from God. We read in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction, from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might? There is nothing worse to imagine than to be put in a place where you can't get to God. There is nothing worse for any existing being than to be cast away from the presence of God forever. He will separate the sheep from the goats. And to the goats he'll say, Depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. We did it according to the right name, and we did the kinds of things your people do. Now, why don't you let us in? And he's going to look at them and say, Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. The most dreaded words, perhaps, in all the English language, or whatever other language may be translating them, Depart from me. All these years he's being, he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And he'll gladly welcome you when you forsake all the other gods and all your other pursuits and your own mind and come to him. Lean not to your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Come to me. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow and as wool. Come, come. But the day will come when you will be saying to him, Lord, come. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And he'll say, depart. Go away. Out. The result of the judgment is that the wicked who have not repented of their ungodliness will be told and made to to depart from God. Our verse 6 says, Christ is going to give a pour out affliction on those that afflicted the church. In Matthew 25, 41, the Lord calls it everlasting fire into which he will cast the wicked. He uses the terms torment in the scriptures. In the story of the rich man with Lazarus, the rich man lifted up his eyes in hell and he said, send someone, Lazarus, back to just touch my tongue with a drop of cool water. I'm in torment in these flames notwithstanding what all the wise of this world have attempted to do with that passage. I tell you, dear brethren, the Bible teaches that men, when they die, go to a place of torment. And that all the wicked are now in a place of torment. And there will be a great day coming when that will be finalized and firmed up in the lake of fire, everlasting fire. The Lord describes it as outer darkness in Matthew 8. Jude 13 calls it the blackness of darkness forever. 
Now notice it's outer darkness. It's outside. It's not where God is. It's not where light is. It's not where hope is. It's not where any good is. It's outer. Out. Out. Nothing shall come into the city that makes a lie or that is an abominable practice. It's out. And it's darkness. The blackness of darkness forever. As one writer has said, in this life, sorrow is not yet sorrow. And despair is not yet despair. And trouble is not yet trouble. Every conceivable difficulty and grief and pain and sorrow of known to mankind is all collected in the lake of fire. And it will never die. And the Lord describes their condition. He says it's a place where their worm dieth not. That means those things that eat away at the flesh, they don't die because it's constantly, continually something to be eating away at. They don't perish and disappear. They're not annihilated according to some of the cults. That's not right. They're going to be suffering in torment forever in outer darkness from the face of the blessed God. Their worm dies not, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever. The Jehovah's Witness, I won't tell you what they say that means. If I understand them right, they say, well, that doesn't mean that they're going to be in torment. It just means the smoke that burned them the day Jesus came will continue to rise up. and it'll be the, You'll just see the memory. That's not what it says. It is the smoke of their torment. It is the smoke that continues to arise from their present torment. ask the Jehovah's Witness so you are holding out for a doctrine in order to trip up evangelicals when you come secretly to their homes and visit them that it's not going to be an eternal punishment just annihilation what have you gained are we to applaud your superior doctrine that all God's going to do is eliminate you and you'll never get the light of day again and you'll never know his face again either one is not acceptable brethren But I tell you, they have perverted the scripture and are worse than liars. It's going to be eternal torment. I'm not here to vindicate God. I'm not here to explain why that's righteous. I tell you, it's what the Bible says. And you've got to take the whole picture. Or you can't have any. You've got to take obedience to his law. Or you can't take grace. Grace teaches you to obey his law. You've got to take the membership and faithful adherence to his will in his church or you can't have him. You must give up your most beloved allegiances if it requires it to follow Christ. And there's no delay. He doesn't guarantee you'll get another invitation. You've had many now and so you've begun to expect you're going to have many more. Someday God's going to cut it off. He that being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Prepare to meet God. Get the conscience free in the blood of Christ so that you'll not suffer everlasting punishment apart from God. As Jesus says in Matthew 8, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And every, I believe almost every time he uses that phrase, the definite article is placed, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And what he means, he's referring to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 66 when he spoke of the new heavens and the new earth and he spoke of those outside as weeping and gnashing their teeth. 
Jesus said, I'm going to tell you when that's going to happen. It's when the Son of Man comes in the power of the glory of the angels. There will be the weeping and the gnashing. And that word gnashing means grating the teeth, either in agony or in anger. And in this case, I believe both. They will not repent of their blasphemies. They'll continue to grate their teeth in anger against the God who judged them righteously. It is their nature to do so. But they'll also be grating their teeth in pain and torment. Scriptures are full of warnings. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the Lord Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven in his teaching. Don't ask me to explain why, but it does tell me that there needs to be put weight on that subject. Everlasting separation from the presence of God. In torment and agony, without hope, depart from me. The day the advocate becomes the judge and the prosecuting attorney, and there's no one to defend you. No defense. Everlasting burning. Everlasting destruction from the face of God. But finally, not only everlasting separation from the face and the presence of God, but everlasting separation from the righteous. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. One of the things that's going to make heaven blessed is there aren't going to be any wicked people there. I don't know why I'm going to get to go there other than God's mar marvelous grace. That, that still boggles the mind. I should go to hell instead of someone else having done so for me in the person of Christ. But don't be naive and think that heaven's going to allow, allow a little sin in. God's not going to do it the way men do it. And remember the purpose of the second coming was to remove sin from God's creation. The last way he's going to do that is to remove sinners from his presence and his kingdom. Not just sins, but sinners. Those who will not get their sins removed in Christ will have themselves removed by Christ. There'll be no mercy in that day for them. It's over. No further hope of subsequent repentance. God will purge the world of the remains of sin's curse and of sinners. He will remove the wicked from the king. As we read in Proverbs, you remove the wicked from the king and the nation will be at peace. How little the ungodly of this age realize the restraining and blessed effects the Christian has had on him. They blaspheme, they persecute, they, they look down their noses at the saints and they have no idea that our very presence in the world has saved their neck more than once. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. It is for the sake of Lot that God spared and waited on Sodom's destruction till Lot got out. Sodom existed longer than it had a right to exist because a righteous man lived there. Some of your businesses God is favoring because of the presence of his saints there. There'll come a day when they'll not have the righteous with them. They'll be separated. There'll come a day when the fellowship of the church, which they despise now, will no longer be available. And they'll get their company. And they'll have nothing but the pornographers and the dope addicts and the righteous, indignated, uh, self-righteous blasphemers. They'll have their company. And they'll not be able to find a Christian to tell them the truth. They'll not be able to meet an example of godliness and decency. No one will be kind to them. No one will forgive them. No one will forbear them. There will be no patient people. 
They'll all be ruthless. They'll all be wretched. And they'll live among each other forever. It's a horrible thought. I wish I could draw a picture with words the way some can. I can't. But I hope that the Holy Spirit can paint a picture that's clear in your mind that this is a day to be avoided of all days. This is an hour for which you must prepare. Everything in your life better be set on preparing for this day so that you'll stand. What does Psalm 1 say? The wicked will not stand in the judgment, but the righteous will. How do you become a righteous man? Fall all over yourself and try to do your best to measure up to this church's standards? No, no. Forget yourself and run to Christ. Cry to him for mercy and forsake this world and everything you plan to do with it and run to him and follow him and quit doing all the rest and lay down your life before his feet. Trust in him and him alone. He'll save you. He'll change you. He'll bless you. And you'll avoid the wrath to come. No other way. May God give us grace this morning to hear the gospel and to obey it and prepare for the judgment that is sure to come. Bow with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we are convinced that it does matter what we believe and it does matter to whom we pray. And we have been persuaded that you are, you the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, are the true and the living God. But Lord, we recognize that we are sinners and ignorant and so we cry to you that you would now by your spirit of faithfulness apply this truth of the day of judgment to come to every hearer in this room. The sobriety and the somberness that was put upon us as we heard and as we thought about these things, we pray you'd keep it upon us. We pray you'd not let us easily leave this place and forget what we felt and heard, but that you by your spirit would give us grace to follow through and obey it and live in the light of it. Oh, Lord, we thank you that as we contemplate the wrath to come, we contemplate it from the perspective of those who have been hidden in the ark and whom the flood of fire will not overrun. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his saving grace and power. And pray for those that have not found refuge in him, that you would give them the mind and eyes to see it and the heart to believe it. Cause them by your spirit even today to run to the rock that is higher than they and find refuge for the soul. Oh, Lord, we're thankful to have our rest in you and we gladly accept the persecution of those who one day will be afflicted by your judgment. We pray that we'll be able to win many of them by our demeanor. But we ask you to keep us faithful in the meantime as we look for that day when the very elements will melt with fervent heat. Oh, God, thank you for delivering your people from the wrath to come. We pray that we would hear soon of others who sat in this place who have so been delivered. Answer our plea, for we ask it in the name of him who loves sinners and loves to save sinners. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.